Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 89, Revelation, the Beast from the Sea. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, which is very explicitly simply describing what John calls the beast from the sea. And so we're going to notice some connections between this beast and the dragon that we looked at in the last several episodes in Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to pay particular attention to some key words, some key words like power and thrones and great authority. And we're going to see what we've looked at so far in Revelation as it relates to those words when exercised by God and now how ultimately the dragon lays claim to those same types of words and how he exercises those authority and that power and uh, seated on a throne through his representative, the beast. And so um, I'm hoping to give you a little bit of historical context, a little bit of background, and let us to take root into what it might have been like for first century churches dealing with this reality and therefore why John is sharing this with the churches. And then as we transition into the second half of the chapter in upcoming episodes, I'm going to hopefully be able to show you how and where we can see similar manifestations of beast-like power, authority, and rule um, in our own day. So I'm excited to get right into Revelation 13. Would you just jump in with me? To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, as we jump in to this particular section, I would like to begin at the end of the passage that I just read for you and work away sort of back into the passage from there. But John ends this section in verses 9 and 10 by saying, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, we've referenced this numerous times in the podcast. Um, We've talked about this as it relates to idolatry. This is classic idolatry language from the Old Testament. Those who worship gods who have mouths but cannot speak and eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, those who worship them become like them. And 
the Old Testament and then Jesus ultimately and here again in the works of the the words of the Spirit in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation saying he who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches Jesus is always seeking to strip us away from ideologies or idolatries or loyalties of things that are not rooted in him which cause us to actually be deaf to his voice when he calls us. And so the end of Revelation 13, 10, this like halfway section of the chapter ends with recognizing, need to understand something here, guys. If you're gonna be taken captive, you're gonna go be taken captive. If you're gonna be slain with the sword, with the sword, you're gonna be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So what John's about to describe in describing a beast is something that every one of the seven churches in Asia Minor to whom John is writing, they know what this means. And we'll get to it in just a second. They know that the beast represents a great threat to their livelihood as people, particularly as Christians who have been called out of the Roman kingdom into the kingdom of God. And lest you think that today politics and religion ought to be kept separate, it was not the case in the first century and actually shouldn't be the case today. Uh, when people say you ought to keep politics out of religion, it is a, simply a misunderstanding about what Christian faith actually is. Because in the first century, for you and I to read on the pages of our New Testament, Jesus is Lord, was a political statement. Because the Roman Empire had, in effect, taken over all of the land of Israel at the time our New Testaments were written, at the time Jesus walked the earth. And when somebody says Jesus is Lord, what they are saying is Caesar is not. And that's a no-no in the Roman Empire. And then it's an extremely politically unloyal thing to say in the Roman kingdom. And so what we're going to find here is John's reminding the church, remember... I'm calling you to endurance and faithfulness on the part of being a faithful witness. Remember, witnessing to the pattern of the Christ. And so if we start there, we realize that what John's about to describe is something that is gruesome, that is powerful, that is strong, that is mighty, that poses a legitimate threat to any faithful witness to Jesus in the first century. But it also poses a tremendously great temptation for other churches to begin to saddle up next to the beast in some way, shape, or form so as to avoid the types of persecution that might otherwise come their way if they realize that their statement of faith toward Jesus is really diametrically the opposite of what the empire is really all about. And so John has had to repeatedly warn the churches, and here he's offering us quite literally a connection point now. Following this mythical picture of the narrative of the dragon and the woman and the child who she gives birth to and then the dragon turning on the offspring of the woman, we now get this direct connection, not just a connection because chapter 13 happens to follow chapter 12, but because of the very language that is used in describing the beast and its inseparable connection from the dragon. Let's jump back up to the beginning of the passage and let me show you exactly what I'm trying to say. If you go to Revelation 12, 2, we are told that John says, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. Now I want you to flip back to Revelation 13, 4 in describing the beast, 
um, I'm sorry, not 13.4, in 13.1, um, excuse me. He says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Well, now let's do a comparison here. The beast has 10 horns and seven heads and the dragon has seven heads and 10 horns. The dragon has diadems or crowns or royal jewels or royal symbols on its heads. And the beast has these same diadems, but rather on its horns. It has blasphemous names on its heads, but the head itself, the authority in the head belong to the dragon. They belong to Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan as Revelation 12 made abundantly clear to us. Here we are seeing a, a quite literally a, a puppet type thing happening here. We have the dragon's hand in the middle of a puppet acting out the roles of this beast. And it's very explicitly told us in the very next verse where it says the dragon gave to this beast his power and his throne and his great authority. Now, what you have here in these three terms, as I tried to allude to in the introduction, is you have terms that have been used in the book of Revelation already. And we're, we're going to get to that in just a second. But I want you to notice what's happening here. It says, this beast was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, to this beast, the dragon gave his power, throne, and great authority. And so let's just look at that for a second. If, if you remember back to Revelation chapter one, we have here in the book of Revelation competing visions for what is power, what is a throne, and what is great authority. We have competing visions for the definitions of those terms, and we have competing visions for the way in which those three um, attributes or descriptors or gifts are obtained power, thrones, and great authority. So for instance, in Revelation 1.5, we're introduced to God and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit by saying, and from Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. This is how Jesus is described. Again, if you do not realize what a, what a monstrous political statement that actually is in the first century, um, we're not actually tuned into the context very well. Um, that was a major political statement and everyone in Rome knew that. And so then in Revelation chapter um, two, it says um, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron until the end. Oh, I'm sorry, I rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Well, now you've got this idea of authority. Here's how Jesus exercises authority. He's gonna share his same rule and authority with his followers to have authority over the nations. Hold that thought. Revelation 13 addresses something to do with authority and nations as well. And we'll get to that. 
How about in Revelation chapter four, verse two, John is given a vision of, he sees a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now remember the vision that John is given is one that says for all intents and purposes, when you look at the struggle of the churches and you look at some of them facing persecution and you look at some of them um, caving on their faithful witness so as to avoid persecution and you get some of them who are very, very comfortable with Rome and serving Rome and serving Caesar just enough to make sure that life isn't made too tough for them and then others who are holding faithfully the line of of faithful witness to Jesus and are being persecuted as a result. John is given another vision of someone who's actually on the throne and it's not Caesar. And the events that are happening in chapter four and in chapter five of Revelation are a very different image of how it is that the one seated on the real throne places his victor on the throne with him, which is why in chapter five of Revelation, we see the one seated on the throne and the lamb standing right there with him, the lamb who was slain. And so in Revelation five verses 12 and 13, we say worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. These are attributes. These are characteristics. These are adjectives that would be describing rulers. They would be describing kings. And these kinds of words were used to describe Caesar on the throne. But in Revelation, they are used to describe Jesus, the one who really is on the throne, the one who really is the Lord. And so we read in verse three of Revelation 13, one of his heads, one of this beast's head seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, what's really interesting when you get into this is um, that, that at the time, you know, several years prior to Revelation being written, you know, there were numerous Caesars in the Roman empire. And one of them who is most famous uh, probably um, for for his wickedness, for some of his dysfunction and um, paranoia throughout his rule, but was in fact Nero, Nero Caesar. And in 68 AD, when Nero was only 30 years old because of some social and political turmoil um, that was surrounding his reign, he ended up taking his own life. And there rose up after him a very rapid succession of new Caesars who took his place and then were dethroned. And then a new one came up and he also was dethroned. And so slowly throughout this continual downward spiral of the Roman Empire and its instability regarding who was the actual king, who wasn't, rumors began to spread that Nero wasn't really dead but that he just had disappeared for a while and was going to make a glorious comeback. And when he did, Rome was going to rise to more stability, to more greatness and to more honor than they ever were before. That was a narrative that was actually circulated in the first century AD throughout the Roman empire. John is describing that reality right here when he says one of its heads, right? You've got these rulers Within the Roman Empire, one of its heads manifesting itself as these multiple heads, right? This completed seven is this completed picture of, of, of dominion and, and royalty and thrones. And he says one of his heads seemed 
to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so part of what's happening is it's not only this this narrative that begins to be constructed that Nero isn't really dead, but it's also the idea that even if one of its kings dies off, the Roman Empire continues to dominate. A new Caesar will just step into his place. And so however you define this, however you and I seek to understand it, Rome was not defeated even though Nero took his own life. And of course, it certainly doesn't, it certainly helps your cause when you start spreading the narrative that he actually isn't dead, but that he just disappeared for a bit and is coming back later. But the idea that I don't want you to miss is notice the comparison here between the beast and the lamb. This is not not coincidental. This is incredibly intentional. But if one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound and the mortal wound was healed, and then the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And what do they say? They worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, you don't have to read incredibly closely through Revelation to notice that worship is also a tremendously powerful theme running throughout the book. People worship the one they believe is worthy of worship. And in chapter four, the Lord himself, God, the one seated on the throne is worshiped as the creator. And in chapter five of Revelation, the one um, who, the, the lamb who was slain, is worshiped right alongside the one seated on the throne because he was slain and ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so what you actually have going on in Revelation 13 is this perfect parody. You have God in Revelation chapter four who gives his authority to the lamb and shares the worship of the entire creation centering around the activity of God as he has demonstrated his, his rule and his authority and his tremendous power through his self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying for one's, one's enemies, love embodied in the Lamb. You have then the nations falling down before the lamb and the one seated on the throne, rejoicing in him, giving him wisdom and praise and honor and glory and power and might and blessing forever and ever. This is ultimately this huge creation song that is offered up to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb as Revelation 5 comes to a conclusion. But here you have the dragon who is a complete opposite reflection of God. This is in fact the battle that we just read about in Revelation chapter 12, who gives his authority and his power, not to a lamb to self-sacrificially die for one's enemies, but rather to a beast who causes enemies by destroying them and then takes, you know, takes over the world in a power over type of a mentality. But the same response is generated by the beast when the world looks at the Roman Empire and says, wow, the Roman Empire was dealt a quote-unquote death blow, Nero's death, and yet the Roman Empire kept right on going. Look at the power. Look at their strength. Look at their might. Look at their glory. And we're told in verse 4 that they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, a little bit of Old Testament knowledge will come in really helpful here as you're listening in and as you're reading along. When all of the people say, 
Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? They quite literally are quoting almost word for word one of the songs that Moses led the people to sing in Exodus chapter 15 after the Lord successfully rescued them from Egypt and delivered them through the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, we actually read this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the song goes on to explain exactly who this Lord is, exactly who this God is, and how no one else on the planet is like him. Well, here, we've got a contrary story going on. We've got a contrary story being played out. We have a dragon giving his authority and power and throne to the beast, and we have all the people worshiping the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? It's a total parody. It's a total replay. What happened with Nero and the fact that the Roman Empire continued to move forward is supposed to be a mocking parody of what actually did happen to Jesus. Jesus didn't just appear to be dead, right? In verse three of Revelation 13, it says, one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. No, remember in Revelation one, Jesus is like, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here's Jesus who actually did die, who has been resurrected and vindicated and is offering that hope and that promise of a life of sacrifice, a life of dying to oneself, a life of love of, of enemy, of love of neighbor, of mercy triumphing over judgment, a life of forgiveness and compassion and belief and, and um, being driven by the love of a father for a lost and dying world, that is the kind of life that in the end will be vindicated. Satan is parodying it, this message, because he has nothing else to work with. And so he makes up a version of that story that convinces the world that the real power on this earth is the beast. And it doesn't take long for you to figure out what's happening. I mean, the beast, it is just this view of the Roman Empire. It's this view of who is the one who's really in power? Who's the one who exercises rule? Who is the one who has great authority? Everyone in the Roman Empire knew who this was, and it was the Roman authority, ultimately. John here, though, is linking the Roman authority to Satan. So as to make sure that John's readers know Rome... And Caesar and the centurions and the prison guards and those who are arresting you and those who are making your life difficult in the marketplace, they're not the real enemy. The real enemy is someone deeper and greater and stronger who is manipulating these worldly systems to make them appear divine when in reality they're not. And yes, he does in fact suck in those caught in the system, not just those who look to Rome to be their savior, but Rome itself who comes to think of itself as the savior. It's precisely what's going on. And you know, as you work your way through the New Testament, if you were to reread through the New Testament and think in terms of political categories, you know that Jesus's idea of ruling and of exercising power 
and of exercising authority are very, very different than the way the dragon convinces the beast to manifest these same characteristics. And let me give you just one example. In Matthew chapter 20, we know that there are two very different conceptions of what power thrones and great authority actually are and how they work themselves out in the world. One looks like a lamb, the other looks like a beast. And here's how Jesus describes this to his disciples. Listen to this again for the first time. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus knows that the rulers of the Gentiles, whoever they may be, whatever kingdom they are a part of, the people who do not know him, and his ways lord their authority over other people. They exercise authority over them. And we've talked at different points about the language of the kingdom, the power over kingdom versus the power under kingdom. The kingdom of the sword is a power over kingdom. It lords its authority over those underneath it. It threatens to discipline them or punish them or make their lives hell if they do not submit to the greater authority. Jesus comes and says, remember, the one with all authority and uses his authority in a power under way. He comes down below the people that he is ruling in order to serve them into a better life. He serves them and cares for them and nourishes them and draws them in to his presence so as to experience, experience flourishing hope and life. And he calls on his disciples not to get sucked into the idea that the way to rule in this world is to do it the way that the Gentiles do. We'll have time in future weeks to take a look at how the temptation for even disciples of Jesus to believe that the way they could have influence in this world would be to saddle up next to power structures and authority structures and ways of ruling the world that do in fact more mirror the beast's way of ruling than they mirror the lamb's. This is a caution. Jesus is cautioning his disciples in Matthew 20. And I think today the Christians in this country need to be cautioned in the same way. Again, we'll have more to say about that in weeks to come. Now, if you look down to verse seven in Revelation chapter 13, we read that authority was given it to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, I hope by this point in Revelation, if you've been following along throughout the series, you'll recognize that phrase, every tribe and people and language 
and nation. Um, it actually comes from several places in Revelation, um, not the least of which is chapter 5, as well as in chapter 7. And it's describing um, this realm over which the beast here is given his authority, but it's the same set of people. It's the nations that Jesus shed his blood to create a kingdom from. So you notice that Jesus, you know, shed his blood from, to, to ransom a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And here, the beast is actually granted authority over all of these peoples. And we're going to see later that he blinds them and deceives them and convinces them that his way is the right way. And the ultimate question is, this is a battle for people's lives. This is a battle for people's hearts and loyalties and allegiances. This is a battle to draw in people regarding what is the best way to rule in this world. What is the best way to guarantee that I'm going to be protected? What is the best way to find the life that I seek? What is the best way to see the way my money ought to be used in this world? What is the best way to find security and hope and satisfaction and the good life? This is ultimately what Revelation is laying before us. And John is telling us that this this question, this decision is being laid before every person on the planet. The question is this, what is the means by which God will seek to gather all the nations to himself? We saw this was the goal at the end of Revelation chapter 11. And we saw that while judgments and threat of judgments alone cannot turn the hearts of the nations who are caught up in idolatry and in the ways of this world, self-sacrificial, compassionate, embodied love of the followers of Jesus unto death can break through the hard hearts of the nations such that they come pouring in. And so the question John's laying before us here in Revelation 13, by using this same phrase to identify the nations that are in the grip of the beast and the grip of the dragon, the question is, how will God seek to gather these people? Will he use beast-like conquering and victory and bloodshed? Or will he use lamb-like conquering and victory through the shedding of the lamb's blood and the blood of the Lamb's followers. By now, if you've been tracking with me through this series, I'm pretty sure you know the answer. And so if we continue to think about what John's describing, he's describing a beast. And it kind of sounds funny that he calls them the beast or beasts, but we know from Daniel chapter seven, and we've looked at this, numerous episodes that Daniel is given a vision of these four different beasts, which we've identified as four separate kingdoms. And then Daniel's vision of one like a son of man ascending to the ancient of days to receive a kingdom that will never end is in fact describing the very thing that Jesus has come to do. And his kingdom is going to be a kingdom that will never end. And he will share the glory and the reign of that kingdom with his followers as Revelation has already alluded to and will reference again before we're done. But in the book of Daniel, there are four beasts that are given and this particular beast that John describes is sort of like a conglomeration of all of the beasts. It might be called like the super beast. Um, it, it brings aspects of all these various nations, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, uh, Syria, all of these different types of empires that have, that have gone on through the history of the Old Testament. 
this the the Romans, the Roman Empire is kind of this super beast. And Rome would have been proud for you to identify them in such a way because they believed that they were quite superior to every conceivable kingdom and empire that came before them. But uh, something that I think is kind of helpful and would be good for us to ponder is why are they called beasts? Um, you know, that's just an interesting term, but um, I, I really like to walk through that for just a second. Um, if you remember back to Genesis chapter one, God ordered the creation as follows. He was on the throne. Mankind was created in his image to rule the creation on God's behalf. And then the beasts were among those that mankind was tasked to rule over. So that's the order. God, man, beasts. From the top, God, below him, man, below them, the beasts. Sounds simple enough, right? And so as long as man remains between the one in authority over him, God, and rules those under him, beasts, as God would rule them, he will fulfill his calling as an image bearer and fully flourish as a human being. This is the way we were made. It is the way God intended us to be. And if we remain in the place we were put, things will go splendidly. But if man steps outside of this divine ordering and places himself in the position of God, thereby disrupting the order, he doesn't actually occupy the highest place, but rather begins to act beastly instead. You see, one of the most often forgotten aspects of being a fully flourishing human being is recognizing that we have limits, that we are not all-knowing or all-wise. We make mistakes. We don't see everything as it actually is. We don't always make the best decisions. And our place in this world will flourish as it was intended when we allow God to govern us before we concern ourselves with governing the creation. But as with many other things in this fallen world, which again began in the fall in Genesis 3, we've bought into the lie that governing the creation would go much smoother if we didn't take our cues from God himself, but rather called the shots for ourselves. This sounded good to Adam and Eve. And so they took from the forbidden tree what they never considered was that their own flourishing as human beings was dependent upon God maintaining governance over them. And their decision to step outside of his divine ordering of things propelled them not to the top of that hierarchy where they believed they could be like God, but rather to the bottom, to the realm of the beasts of the earth. And now people or systems or structures or nations whenever they elevate themselves as right in their own eyes or take onto themselves status that belongs solely to God, they quickly degenerate into beasts. And what separates human beings from beasts? Is it not that our self-control and our reasoning skills can hold at bay our natural instincts for food, sex, and self-preservation? Yeah, I kind of think that's exactly what it is. And so I want you to consider 
that every place where you find human beings believing themselves to be on par with the gods, their treatment of other human beings always takes on beastly characteristics. This is what John is describing in Revelation chapter 13. This is what John could very easily go on to describe in every type of tyrannical government, any type of strong patriarchal family structure where you don't question dad. Dad is always right. Kids are afraid of their dad because he has adopted a stance that is inching himself closer to a view of who God is as the ultimate judge and determiner of good and evil. He is adopting that standard in God's place, maybe even in God's name, claiming to be acting like God when God himself acts like Jesus and does not lord authority over those that he rules. And what's scary when you begin to understand the spirit behind why the Bible calls these sort of rulers beasts is you begin to get this idea that we can almost look at this not as a proper noun so much, like, oh, who's the beast today? Now, people throughout church history have done this um, at different points in church history. Some thought the, the Roman Catholic Church was the beast, and some people think that the Russians are the beast, and some people claim that the Chinese is, you know, China is the beast. And people always look at these ideas and they want to identify who is the one, who is the thing. Now, in John's context, he actually was referring to the Roman Empire. We, we know this, and this is helpful and, and factually correct. But we also know that in Jesus's day, while the Israel's nation was under Roman rule and why they're very, while there very much was a king on the throne, you know, Caesar himself in Jesus's day, remember the time in Matthew 26 when the religious leaders are attempting to falsely accuse Jesus and bring up false witnesses to put him to death. And Jesus's response to them is from now on, you will see the son of man coming on the right, you know, sitting at the right hand of the father and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus identifies to his own people, his own Jewish people and the leadership structure that they had created which clearly was a power over structure and an oppressive structure and a beast-like structure toward all of the people underneath them that they felt proud and privileged to rule over. Jesus, in effect, by quoting from Daniel 7 in reference to himself, which was God's answer to the problem of destructive beastly kingdoms that were running rampant in the world, Jesus was, in effect, calling his own religious people, a beast, because they were acting just like Rome was. They were acting just like beastly kingdoms. And so I think that's a tip-off clue for you and for me to recognize that what we're seeing here, as we've already alluded to, is a parody. We have the dragon who gives his authority and his power and his throne to the beast 
And as we'll see next time, who ultimately hands over that authority to what Revelation will call the false prophet. It's one who speaks lies and who breathes lies and draws people in to want them to give their praise, allegiance, and worship to the first beast. In the book of Revelation, we might even call the dragon beast false prophet. We might even call that an unholy trinity. And that would be a true thing to say. Because while you have the dragon giving his authority to the beast who then pushes the false prophet to declare falsely that the beast is the one worthy of everyone's worship, who then ultimately results in worshiping the dragon, we have God in the book of Revelation seated on the throne who gives his authority and his power to the lamb. And the way that faithful witness, not the false prophet, not testifying falsely, but testifying rightly, through the power of the spirit to the fact that the lamb is the one who has ultimate authority and the way he's gone about obtaining that authority is the same way he wants his followers to go about it. You now have the Trinity fully working, fully operational and drawing the saints in to the process. This is why at the end of every one of the letters to the seven churches, you hear the words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The spirit speaks truth, brings life, and draws everyone to whom it speaks back to worship of the lamb, who then offers the worship back to the one who is seated on the throne. It's the Holy Trinity versus the unholy Trinity. Both are laying claim to every person on the planet. Both are giving a vision of the good life. One of them produces life. The other produces death. The question on the table is, which one will you believe brings life? And so I think when Jesus addresses his own people as beastly, beast-like, the beast, who are part of a Roman empire where they have grown to understand, if you want to get ahead in this world, you do it the way Rome does because the way Rome does it works in the real world. Look at us. We're prisoners to Rome. We are you know, submitting under their rule because they own our land and they own our space. And they've learned really quickly. If you want to get ahead in this world, especially in an empire like Rome's, you better learn to shove some people out of your way. You better learn to put some people beneath you. You better learn to be a power over um, authority ruler because if you're not, you're going to get stomped on. Notice what Jesus walked into when he came on the scene in the first century. And did Jesus get stomped on? Yes, he did. Which is why I said at the end of Revelation chapter 12, I'm not sure that too many of Christians in our world want to conquer the beast the same way Jesus did. But the reason I don't think that, or the reason I do think that that's the case is because we've grown quite comfortable in this land, in a place where authority and power and domination are such um, revered attributes. <laughs> if you want to get ahead, you need to climb the ladder. This is always going to be the way that it is in this world. And this is why it is such a temptation for every person on the planet, again, to adhere 
to one of these two ways of living. And so when I look at the beast, I'm not trying to identify a person. I'm not trying to identify a system. I'm recognizing that wherever a person or a family or a system or an institution places itself above other people and uses that position not to serve them, but to rule over them, as Jesus said in Matthew 20, you shouldn't do, then they begin to take on beastly characteristics and begin to treat other people the way animals treat each other. That is why they're called beasts. And I have seen this and you have too manifesting itself in all sorts of institutions, families, systems, structures, And yes, I am well aware of the fact that it can and does and is currently manifesting itself in Christian churches. The reason why I need to say this is first of all, because it's true, but it's also because in the context of Revelation, John is writing this letter to the churches. He needs to explain the realities and what is behind the realities so that everyone in his church realizes, wait a minute, if I'm in some type of a power struggle and I'm in some type of a fight to the death and we are in some type of a disagreement or lockdown, we are actually being manipulated right now by the dragon who's convincing us that the power over way of living is the right way. And it saddens me that there are people who come to believe that because it's a church or because we are a church going family or because this institution was, was begun by Christians, that somehow all of those things make those institutions or families or organizations or churches exempt from being sucked into the ways of the beast. John does not want you to be foolish and he doesn't want me to be foolish either. We can all get sucked into that. That is always a caution. And there is somewhere along the line where the, the, the gathering of small groups of Christians becomes just big enough that you start to think of it as an organization or you start to think of it as the institution, or you start to think of it as the structure or the policy, and somewhere in there, the line is really hard to find, but somewhere in there, that family or that structure or that institution or that organization or that church begins to take on a life of its own. And you've all experienced this, And then everybody flees and everybody submits now to the institution or to the organization or to the family or to the structure or to the church to their detriment when you now can't speak a negative word against the family or the institution or the structure or you're not being loyal to it. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand our loyalty is to him We love the families and the structures and the churches that are broken and that need repair, but we love them by speaking the truth in love. We don't submit ourselves to this organization or institution. If it's becoming beast-like in its character, we want to graciously, but truthfully and boldly call it out, call it to be what it was supposed to be, call it to repentance. Jesus, of course, 
did this and he suffered and died as a result. Don't be surprised if the same thing awaits us. But what does John say? Here is a call for the perseverance and faithfulness of the saints. Do you know why John has to say that? Because everywhere you and I look, sometimes no further than our own hearts, we are going to be confronted with beast-like characteristics in the hearts and lives of people, families, systems, structures, nations, churches, institutions, organizations, whatever. Wherever we see beast-like living, we need to graciously, but faithfully and boldly call it out. Draw people in a power under way to see that there is a better way and to call them to repentance and to help set free those who are caught in the clutches of those broken systems so that they come to understand there is a better way of life and their lives can be made better by those who actually follow the lamb and seek to spread the life he's come to bring to all tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. This is the message of revelation. And now you've gotten me really excited and really passionate and we're out of time and that's okay because I love you all and I love this podcast and it's such a breath of fresh air to just be able to talk this out. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for commenting online. Thank you for sending me emails. I love it. I'd love to hear more from you if I haven't for a while. Even if you email me all the time, do it again. Unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I'd love to hear questions or thoughts that you have. Thank you so much for those who are supporting this podcast. Thank you for those of you who are investing in your churches, who are loving your families, who are reaching out to neighbors, who are caring for those that you can just tell don't have anybody else caring for them. Thank you. Jesus notices things like that and is going to fuel you with his spirit's presence and power to enable you to continue to do it. So I love you. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.